Chapter 24 of Cordelia the Magnificent. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Dodie. Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott. Chapter 24. How Mitchell Apologized to Himself. All these exhilarating days Cordelia's sky had been ever of deepest blue. Not a single cloud had marred that unfailing blue, and if a cloud existed anywhere in all the heavens, it had remained below Cordelia's horizon. Then a cloud did lift itself above the skyline of her life. It appeared first in the form of Mitchell. These last several weeks Cordelia had not given Mitchell a serious thought. She had been too busy to dwell upon him, and she had not seen him since her triumph at the pageant. To be sure, her mind had flitted to him a few times and had vagrantly wondered what he was doing. But she asked no one about him, and had no slightest idea what this occupation he had turned to since quitting his butlering career. As for Mitchell, aside from his brief note of congratulation, he had made no slightest attempt to intrude upon Cordelia's new life. When they did meet, it was not in consequence of an attempt on his part at intrusion. It was pure chance, though they were certain to have been thrown together sooner or later. The afternoon of their meeting was one of the few afternoons that Jerry had not been able to spend with her. She was coming out of a Fifth Avenue shop, alone, and was crossing toward her limousine, Jerry's limousine, at her disposal during these weeks, when she saw Mitchell almost upon her. She stopped and held out her hand with a smile. "'Why, Mr. Mitchell!' she exclaimed. She had once planned, when she should meet, that she would cut him dead. It now happened just the other way. His face was white, tight, and blank with unrecognition, and he ignored her hand and strode on. Stupefied, she gazed after him. She could not believe this thing. But instantly, he had turned sharply about and was gripping her arm. After all, I must say it, he declared in a fierce whisper. I must see you a few minutes where we'll be alone. Her compliance was determined as much by her paralyzing stupefaction as by the fierce dominance of his manner. We, uh, we could take a drive in my car she suggested. And perhaps have your chauffeur over here and perhaps understand? I'd rather risk a taxi driver. He hailed a taxi cab, helped her in, called up the avenue to the driver, and stepped in beside her. The eyes in which heretofore she had seen only smiles, good-humored, cynical, or teasing, now blazed on her with withering accusation and disdain. Her dazed spirit had begun to recover its vigorous confidence. What's all this about? she demanded. About several things, all of which are one thing, he said fiercely, slowly, his eyes stabbing her with their disdain. In the first place, I have insulted myself most horribly. I want to regain my self-respect, if that is possible, by apologizing to myself and apologizing to myself in your presence. Go on. I insulted my self-respect when I asked you to marry me. What? She flamed at him. 
I then said to myself that I loved you. I did love you at that time. Perhaps my heart still loves you. But my sense of decency doesn't love you. My self-respect, which once let me ask you to marry you, now demands that I tell you that I despise you more than any woman I know. You dare say that to me? she cried furiously. I do. He drove at her with a slow, fierce relentlessness. And I'll tell you why I despise you. I despise you because you are a liar and a blackmailer and a girl of good chances who has turned into just an ordinary adventuress. Her amazed fury was for a moment almost incoherent. You say, you say, and then, you can't make charges like those and then think I'm going to rest quiet under them. You've got to come out in the open, if you're not a coward, and say just what you mean. To say just what I mean? That's exactly why I've got you here. But, first of all, I'm going to tell you how I happened to find out about you. You remember about my having a talk with your Mr. Franklin and his making me a proposition that sounded very suspicious? You remember telling me that Gladys had told you she was paying more heavily than ever for blackmail? You accused me of getting it. At the time, I didn't take this seriously, for I thought Gladys was just lying. You will remember that I asked you if by any chance you had unconsciously dropped a hint of Gladys' secret to your Mr. Franklin. It occurred to me that if you had dropped a hint to your Mr. Franklin, then, unknown to you, he might be the person who was levying the blackmail Gladys had spoken about. You will remember that, to my question, you returned the reply that you had made no mention of Gladys's affair to your Mr. Franklin. I believe you remember all those things, that you will admit that these are statements of facts. If Fury could have burned, Mitchell would have been a cinder. I admit these things, yes, but you have not said a thing thus far, not a thing, that proves your cowardly slander. I'll prove it in two minutes, don't you worry. For a time, I paid no attention to these facts I have just outlined. Then, somehow, by a natural affinity, they all came together in my mind. I began to think them over. Together, they looked very suspicious. I decided to learn the truth. You were concerned I had to know the truth about you. The one person easiest for me to get the truth or part of the truth out of was Gladys. I remembered the trick you had used to get her secret out of her, working her into such a temper as made her forget all discretion, all self-control. The other day I used your trick. In her wild rage, she let the facts come tumbling out of her. And those facts, Miss Marlowe, prove everything I called you. You've not proved anything yet, she cried. All right. If you will be obstinate in your pretense of innocence, We'll just go over those names I called you one by one. First, as to the liar. I asked you if you had told your Mr. Franklin anything of Gladys' secret. You told me you had not said a word. You lied then, lied flatly. I have the facts, and you might as well admit you lied. That was no lie, she stormed. No one but you would dare call it such. A client's relations with her attorney are confidential. 
Not even a court would demand to know what had passed between a woman and her attorney in confidence. Oh, so you would try to take refuge in that old evasion, he sneered. The sanctity of the legal confessional. Oh, my God, you poor cheap thing. But we'll come back to the liar. We'll now pass on to the blackmailer. I know that you did tell you, Mr. Franklin, about Gladys. He could have learned the facts from no other person but you, and he certainly knew the facts. Your Mr. Franklin has been blackmailing Gladys. I forced everything out of her. She showed me one cancel check for $15,000. She pays him 60000 a year. The thing is covered by a contract for legal services, but it is plainly blackmail, and Gladys admits it is blackmail. Your clever Mr. Franklin is blackmailing with you as his clever assistant. She had begun to have a dim, appalling sense that, somewhere, truth might be hidden in what he was saying. It's, it's not so, she declared, but without her former vigor. Of course you try to play your bluff till the end, but it's no use, I tell you. Here's another point. I didn't know until the other day that you really do not have much money. That, in fact, despite the show you put up, you personally haven't very much more money than I got from my aunt, and I'm just an ordinary working man. But these last few months, you've been spending a lot for a person who has so little. All those new clothes, the car done over, thousands of dollars. Where did that money come from? That's my business. I'll tell you where it came from from your Mr. Franklin. Part of the blackmail he has collected with your help. Answer me this question, if you dare, and I dare you to answer it honestly. Isn't it a fact that you've been having money from Mr. Franklin? Yes, but it has been for honest service, honestly performed. He laughed harshly. If I thought you believed that yourself, I'd add another word to those I've called you. I'd say that you are a fool. You are many things, but you certainly are no fool. You are far too wise to help in a game like this and still be ignorant and innocent of what was really going on. Mr. Franklin could not be paying you any such sums as he was paying you unless it was blackmail money. You can't expect me or anyone else to believe otherwise and you yourself know that what I've said is the truth. No, the money you had from your Mr. Franklin was just ordinary blackmail. Your whole game is now as clear as day. Your whole purpose in coming out to Rolling Meadows was to carry out your and Mr. Franklin's plan of blackmailing Gladys. His injustice was going too far. It was not, she cried hotly. I came to Rolling Meadows to protect Gladys. Don't lie to me, he commanded in savage contempt. I've caught you in one lie, and your lies don't fool me a moment. And please, don't insult my intelligence by telling such a feeble lie as that you came to protect Gladys. Protect Gladys from me. When every penny I was taking from Gladys was being saved to meet Gladys's own obligations in case she ever flunked them. You protect Gladys? When right after you learned her story, you told Mr. Franklin, and a few days later, your blackmail machine was going full speed. 
God, what a weak wit of a liar you are. She tried to retort to this, but he snapped her off. Don't try more lies. Besides, you're not here to talk. You're here to listen. This game against Gladys? I'll bet it was not your only game of the sort. I bet you and your Mr. Franklin have been playing it elsewhere right along. I've called you a liar and a blackmailer, and I've proved both. Now I'm going to prove you an adventurous. You've been using your social position to gain information which you could use to levy blackmail. And you've been using your blackmail money to make a splurge to fascinate men, especially to trap Jerry Plimpton. Shut up, he cried fiercely, when at this last she tried to gasp out an interruption. And he went on with those torrent of molten words, his eyes blazing at her. I told you, you were here to listen. There, I've proved all three counts. Liar, blackmailer, adventurous. And to think that I was so blind that I let you fool me and let you use me. My friends have called me an idealist, a Don Quixote, a good-natured idiot who would be trapped by his own good nature. They were right. And I'm even worse than all that. To think of it, I fell for you and even helped you in your schemes. I loved you, but I thought I wasn't really good enough for you. I wanted you to have the very best chance even with the man I saw as my chief rival. And that, though I had my doubts about Jerry Plimpton being really fine enough for you. In my crazy idealism, I made Gladys step aside for you. I made her write that letter to Jerry Plimpton. My God! To think that I fell for you, helped you! That's all. Except to say that even with you, what you are, I am not going to tell on you. And except to say that Jerry Plimpton's a hundred times too good for you. And except to say that I'm ten thousand times too good for you. You made a fool of me, yes. But now you know that I'm one person who'll always be on to you. And I've apologized to my self-respect. Now I'm through with you. Drive on. Goodbye. With that, he stopped the cab stepped out, handed the driver five dollars, and without glancing back at her, walked rapidly away through the straggling crowd of Upper Fifth Avenue. She stared after his erect figure with angry, horror-filled eyes, forgetful of all else except him and what he had said, until the driver brought her to with, Where to, ma'am? She gave the order to return to the waiting limousine, and in a swirling chaos she drove to her car, and in a swirling chaos she drove home and locked herself in her room. So dazed, so appalled, so wrought up was she that she did not definitely know what she thought or felt. She could not possibly have separated and analyzed her emotional content. But two sensations, each of them part thought and part emotion, dominated all her other wild ferment. One was outraged fury at the very real injustice which had been part of the substance of everything Mitchell had said. The other was a sense of the dazing possibility that the other part of what he had said might be true, and mixed with this sense was a shivering fear. It was this fear, and not her indignation, 
which swelled within her as the minutes and hours passed, with her sitting there staring at nothing. Could those things possibly be true? Could she have been fooled? Been made the instrument of Mr. Franklin's devices? Was this money, which had been supporting the family, supporting her, all these months, in reality, the fruits of blackmail? She remembered that Gladys had said she was paying more blackmail than ever. Something now whispered insistently in Cordelia that Gladys had then spoken the truth. She remembered that Mitchell had said he had not increased his exaction. The same whisper insisted that Mitchell had also then spoken the truth. She remembered that Mr. Franklin had said he could not stop the blackmail. To stop it would require time. And the same whisper began to suggest doubt of these statements, and doubt of every aspect of Mr. Franklin and her relations with him. Beside, staring at her was the fact that she had told him Gladys a secret. And Gladys had told her she was paying more than ever, and Mitchell had said that Gladys had told him that all this extra money was being paid to Mr. Franklin. Both of which statements, it now seemed to Cordelia, might very likely be true. And staring at her was the fact that she and her mother had received large sums from Mr. Franklin, who certainly had not protected Gladys. She grew chill with the deductions with the logic of these considerations forced upon her. Yes, it might all be true. And if true, why, she, Cordelia... But she shrank from the direction in which that thought led. It came to her that she might end the suspense, learn just what was the truth, by going to Mr. Franklin and demanding the facts. But on considering this as a practical action, she found she lacked the courage for it. She did not want to see Mr. Franklin again or speak to him. She admitted to herself she did not want to know the truth. It would be better not to know. She, she was afraid. And so long as she did not know the truth, she was innocent. One resolve she did make. It first flashed into her as an inspiration. It came as a great light that clears away all the black dreads of the night. It brought infinite relief she would pay back all they had had for Mr. Franklin. Even were she unconsciously guilty, this was the extent of her guilt, that she had foolishly but innocently taken his money. Well, she could pay him back every penny. That would make everything right. She wished she could make this repayment instantly and so be all clean, so close the matter forever. But they had spent the money for Mr. Franklin, they had never had less ready money than at present. In fact, they were now living almost entirely upon the credit which was being eagerly extended everywhere in view of the nearing marriage. That was most unfortunate, her not having the ready money. But, and here a swift thought thrilled her with further relief, she soon would have the ready money, as soon as she was married. Her own money, the fortune Jerry had settled upon her, money for which she did not have to account to a living soul. Once married, Mr. Franklin would promptly have every dollar back. The whole affair would then be wiped clean from her life. The question came, should she tell Jerry? If he knew, Jerry would probably be prompted to advance the money immediately or pay off the obligation at once. 
and she would be free of the matter without a day's delay. But as she considered the idea of telling Jerry, objections developed, small, but not exactly pleasant. The affair was rather complicated, and it would be rather difficult to explain so that he would understand, and then, well, after she explained, would Jerry, could Jerry fully understand? She decided that it would be wiser and simpler not to tell Jerry. The matter was not one that affected their relations as an engaged couple. It was not as if her honor, her standing were affected, as if she were any the less personally. And anyhow, there was not much longer to wait. She could wait, quietly repay Mr. Franklin with her own money, and then, when the whole affair had receded into the untroubled region of distant memory, then she would tell Jerry, tell it lightly, humorously, as a bit of a sort of foolishness which a girl may be drawn into before she has a big, wise husband to keep her from the paths of folly. Tell it as a joke on herself. And at this later time, when there was nothing to trouble over, Jerry would laugh at it as a joke. But despite these inspirations, these decisions, which should have quieted her, Cordelia was not quieted. Following that ride with Mitchell, there was not a day when this matter did not recur to her, some days many times, and stir her with unease. Two or three times Jerry caught a strained, faraway look in her eyes. Anything worrying you, Cordy? he asked. Oh, not a thing in the world, she assured him. Then she forced a look of whimsical trouble. Nothing, except that your wife's coming to you broke and a deadbeat and she's worrying about the awful amount of money you're spending on her. That's one worry a kiss should eradicate. And so he eradicated it. Now, look pleasant. She did so, and looked so effectively pleasant that he gravely suggested, in case money should ever become a worry with them, that he would rebuild their fortune by putting canned kisses on the market as a magic beautifier. They had settled upon the 15th of November for their quiet wedding, and Cordelia began to look feverishly forward to this day as the day of her release. When this was still three weeks off, reporters and cameramen began to haunt them in anticipation of the great event, and it was at this time that they began to speak openly of a procedure which had been nebulously in Cordelia's mind all during the engagement, a runaway marriage. It was the end of October that Jerry, provoked by a woman reporter from a newspaper which made a specialty of love romances in his colored Sunday supplement, came out flatly, unequivocally upon the subject. I'm absolutely fed up on these new hounds with their smelling and baying as they trail a fellow's every footstep to the altar, he exclaimed. What do you say, Cordy? Let's put one over on the whole damnable and forever be damned bunch. Let's do what we've talked about fade quietly out of the scene and have a marriage that's nobody's business but her own and let's do it tomorrow. Let's, she agreed. We'll get the license in the morning and then be away. None of our places are fit to stay in and we don't want to go to a hotel. How about Aunt Janet's place? You know she's been begging us to take it for part of our honeymoon. Aunt Janet's in town, but she keeps her Long Island place running. Plenty of servants and all that. All I need to do is just phone her and she'll do the rest. Any objections? 
carried unanimously. Then tomorrow, my dear, tomorrow you and I'll stage one wedding that isn't just a benefit performance for the damned newspapers. We'll show them, my dear. Rapidly, they discussed and settled the details of this escape. Presently, he kissed her goodnight. Never again, he whispered, would a goodnight kiss be a kiss of parting. After Jerry had gone, Cordelia was free to walk her room excitedly, to speak exultantly to herself in her vast relief. Just one more day. End of chapter 24